Chapter Ten of Nothing of Importance by Bernard Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Whom the Gods Love. No officer wounded since we came out in October, said Edwards. We're really awfully lucky, you know. For heaven's sake, touch wood, I cried. We laughed, for the whole of our establishment was wood. We were sitting on a wooden seat, leaning our hands against wooden uprights, eating off a wooden table, and resting our feet on a wooden floor. Sometimes, too, we found splinters of wood in the soup, but it was more often straw for this dining-room in Trafalgar Square was known sometimes as the Summer House, and sometimes as the Straw Palace. It was really the maddest so-called dug-out in the British lines, I should think. I might further add, in any trench in Europe. For the French, although they presumably built it in the summer days of 1915, when the Bois Francais trenches were a sort of summer rest for tired-out soldiers, would never have tolerated the summer-house since the advent of the canister age. As for the Bosch, he would have merely stared if anyone had suggested him using it as a company headquarters. But, he would have said, it is not shell-proof. Exactly. It would not have stood even a whiz-bang. A rifle-grenade would almost certainly have come right through it. As for a canister or H.E., it would have gone through like a stone-piercing wet paper. But it had been company headquarters for so long, it was so light, and, being next door to the servants' dugout, so convenient, that we always lived in it still, though we slept in a dugout a little way down Old Kent Road, which was certainly whiz-bang, if not canister-proof. At any rate, here were Edwards and myself, drinking rather watery oxtail soup out of very dented tin plates. The spoons were scraping noisily on the metal. Overhead a rat appeared out of the straw thatch, looked at me, blinked, turned around, and disappeared again, sending a little spill of earth on to the table. "'Hang these rats!' I exclaimed for the tenth time that day. Outside it was brilliant moonlight. Whenever the door opened I saw it. It was very quiet. Then I heard voices, the sound of a lot of men, moving in the shuffling sort of way that men do move at night in a communication trench. The door flew open, and Captain Robertson looked in. "'Hello, Robertson. You're early.' It was not much past half-past seven. "'You've got those sandbags up by 78th Street?' he said, sitting down. Yes, two hundred fifty there, and two hundred fifty right up in the loop. The rest I shall use on the fort. Oh, by the way, you know we are strafing at twelve-five? We just had a message up from Dale. I shall knock off at eleven forty-five tonight. I'll see how we get on. I want to finish that traverse. Right-o. I'm just drawing tools and going up now. See you up there in a few minutes and the muttering stream of A Company filed past the dugout, going up to the front line. The door swung open suddenly, and each man looked in as he went by. "'Shut the door!' I shouted. Our plates themselves somehow suddenly looked epicurean. Soon after eight I was up in the front line. It was the brightest night we had had, and ideal for sandbag work. The men were already at it. There was a certain amount of inevitable talking going on, before everyone got really started. 
We were working on the fort, completing the two box dugouts that we had half put in the night before. Also, we were thickening the parapet between the fort and the loop, and building a new fire-step. "'Can't see any blasted sandbags here,' came from one man. "'We'll have to pick this, sir,' from another. "'Where's Mullins gone off to?' sharply from a sergeant. But for the most part the moonlight made everything straightforward, and there was only the spitting sound of picks, the heavy, smothered noise of men lifting sandbags, or the slap-slap of others patting them into a wall with the back of a shovel that broke the stillness. On the left, A Company, were working full steam ahead, heightening the parapet and building a big traverse at the entrance to the Matterhorn sap. Robertson's Traverse, we always called it afterwards. He got his men working in a long chain, passing filled sandbags along from a big miner's sandbag dump, the accumulation of months of patient R.E. tunnelling. These huge dumps rose up in gigantic piles wherever there was a shaft-head, and they were a windfall to us, if they were anywhere near where we were working. On this occasion, quite a thousand must have been passed along and built into that traverse, and the parapet there, by the Matterhorn. It was fascinating work, passing these dry, small sacks as big as medium-sized babies, only as knobby and angular under their outer cover as a baby is soft and rounded. Meanwhile the builders laid them, like bricks, alternate headers and stretchers. And so the work went on under the moon. "'Davies!' I cried, in that low questioning tone that might well be called trench voice. It is not a whisper, yet it is not a full confident sound. If a man speaks loudly in the front trench, you tell him to remember the Bosch is a hundred yards away. If he whispers in a hoarse voice that sounds a little nervy, you tell him that the Bosch's ears are not a hundred yards long. The result is a restrained and serious-toned medium. "'Sir!' answered a voice close beside me, in a pitch rather louder than the usual trench voice. Davies always spoke clear and loud. He was my orderly. "'Oh, there you are!' Like a dog he had got tired of standing, and while I stood watching the fascinating progress of the erection of a box dugout under Sergeant Hayman's direction, he was sitting on the fire-step immediately behind me. Had he been a collie, his tongue would have been out, and he would have yawned occasionally, or his nose might have even been between his paws. Now he jumped up, giving a hitch to his rifle that was slung over his left shoulder. "'I'm going round the sentries,' I said. Davies said nothing, but followed about two paces behind, stopping when I stopped, and gazing at me silently when I got up on the fire-step to look over. The low ground in the quarry was very wet, and the trench there two feet deep in water, so it was temporarily abandoned, and the little trench out of 76th Street by number 1 sniping post was my way to number 5 platoon. It was a very narrow bit of trench, and on a dark night one kept knocking one's thighs and elbows against hard corners of chalk-filled sandbags. Tonight it was easy in the white moonlight. It was really not a trench at all, but a path behind a sandbag dump. Behind was the open field. There was no parados. All correct on the two posts in number five. It seemed almost unnecessary to have two posts on such a bright night, 
the outline of the german parapet looked clear enough surely the sentries must be visible to-night right opposite was the dark earth of a saphead our wire looked very near and thin everything all right yes sir i saw the bombs lying ready in the crease between two sandbags that formed the parapet top the pins were bent straight ready for quick drawing the bomber was all right and there was not much wrong with his pal's bayonet that glistened in the moonlight as usual i went beyond our right post until i was met by a peering suspicious head from the left-hand sentry of c company who's that in a hoarse low voice as the figure bent down off the fire-step all right officer b company then i passed back along the trench to the top of seventy-sixth street and so on visiting all the sentries up to a trench and disturbing all the working parties way please i would say to the hind quarters of an energetic wielder of the pick hi make way there davies would say in a higher and louder voice when necessary then the figure would straighten itself and flatten itself against the trench while i squeezed past between perspiring men and slimy sandbag this passing was an eternal business it was unavoidable no one ever said anything or apologized no one ever grumbled it was like passing strap-hangers in the crowded carriage of a tube only it went on day and night craters by moonlight are really beautiful the white chalk dust gives them the appearance of snow mountains and they look much larger than they really are on this occasion as i looked into them from the various bombing posts it needed little imagination to suppose i was up in the snows of the welsh hills there was such a death-like stillness over it all too the view from the matterhorn was across the widest and deepest of all the craters and i stood a long time peering across that yawning chasm at the dark irregular rim of german sandbags i gazed fascinated what was it all about the sentry beside me came from a village near dolgelly was a farmer's boy he too was gazing across hardly liking to shuffle his feet lest he broke the silence good god i felt inclined to exclaim has there ever been anything more idiotic than this what in the name of goodness are you and i doing here so i thought and so i believe he was thinking everything all right was all i said as i jumped back into the trench yes sir was all the answer about ten o'clock i went back to trafalgar square there i heard that thompson of c company had been wounded from what i could gather he had been able to walk down to the dressing-station so i concluded he was only slightly hit but it came as rather a shock and i wondered whether he would go to blighty at eleven i started off for the front trench again via rue albert and seventy-eighth street there was a bit of a strafe on it started with canisters it had now reached the stage of whiz-bangs as well i thought little of it when and the bosch turned on his howitzers they screamed over the maple redoubt a pause then again and they screamed down just in front of us evidently after the corner of seventy-eighth street i did not hesitate but pushed on the trench was completely blocked rue albert was revetted with wood and brushwood 
and it was all over the place. Davies and I climbed over with great difficulty, the whole place reeking with powder. "'Look out, sir!' came from Davies, and we crouched down. There was a colossal din, while shells seemed all round us. "'All right, Davies!' and we pushed on. At last here was 78 Street, and we turned up to find another complete block in the trench. We again scrambled over, and met A Company wiring party, returning for more wire. "'The trench is blocked,' said I, "'but you can get over all right.' We passed in the darkness. Again, "'Look out!' from Davies, and we cowered. Again the shells screamed down on us, and burst just behind. "'Good God!' I exclaimed. "'Those wirers!' Davies ran back. There was another block in the trench, but no sign of any men. They were well away by now, but the shell had fallen between us and them before they reached the block in 78th Street. Out of breath we arrived at the top of 78th Street to find A Company just getting going again after a hot quarter of an hour. Luckily they had had no casualties. All was quiet now, and the moon looked down upon the workers as before. A quarter past eleven. I worked my way along to the fort, and found there a sentry rather excited because, he said, he had seen exactly the spot from which they had fired rifle grenades in the strafing just now. I got him to point out the place. It was half left, and as I looked, sure enough, I saw a flash, and a rifle grenade whined through the air, and fell with a snarl behind our trench. "'Davies,' I said, "'get Lance Corporal Allen to come here with the Lewis gun.' Davies was gone like a flash. The Lewis guns had only recently become company weapons, and were still somewhat of a novelty. The Lewis gunners were rather envied, and also rather downed, by the sergeant-major for being specialists. But this they could not help, and they were, as a matter of fact, the best men in my company. Allen arrived, with one of the team carrying two spare drums of ammunition. We pointed out the spot, and he laid his gun on the parapet, with the butt against his shoulder, and his finger on the trigger, and waited. Flash! There he is, sir! from the sentry. Drrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
It was just midnight when I reached Trafalgar Square and bumped into Davidson coming round the corner. "'I was looking for you,' said he. "'You've heard about Tommy?' "'Yes,' I answered. "'But he's not badly hit, is he?' "'Oh, you haven't heard. He died at eleven o'clock.' "'Died! My God! This was something new!' Briefly, tersely, Davidson told me the details. He had been hit in the mouth while working on the parapet, and had died down at the dressing-station. I looked hard at Davidson, as we stood together in the moonlight by the big island traverse at Trafalgar Square. Somehow I felt my body tense, my teeth were pressed together. My eyes did not want to blink. Here was something new. I had seen death often, it was nothing new, but it was the first time it had taken one of us. I wondered what Davidson felt. He knew Thompson much better than I. Yet I knew him well enough. Only a day or so ago he had come to our billet in the butcher's shop, and we had talked of him afterwards. And now, dead. All this flashed through my brain in a second. Meanwhile Davidson was saying, Well, I'm just going off for the strafe, when I heard men running down a trench. Quick, stretcher-bearers, the captain's hit came from someone in a low voice. The stretcher-bearer's dugout was just by where we were standing, and immediately I heard a stir inside, and a head looked out from the waterproof sheet that acted as a curtain in front of it. "'Is it a stretcher-case?' a voice asked. "'Yes,' was the reply, and without more ado two stretcher-bearers turned out and ran up Seventy-sixth Street after the orderly. At that moment there was a thud and a blazing trail climbed up the sky from the left. "'Damn!' I muttered. "'We must postpone this strafe. Davidson, we'll fix up later, see? Only no firing now.' As Davidson disappeared to his gun position, I ran to the telephone. "'Trench mortar, officer,' I said. "'Quick!' But there is no quick about a signaller. He is always there, and methodically, without haste or flurry, he takes down and sends messages. There is no quickness, yet there is no delay. If the world outside pulses and rocks under a storm of shells, in the signaller's dugout is always a deep-sea calm. So impatiently I watched the operator beat his little tattoo on the buzzer, looked at his face as the candlelight shone on it, with its ears hidden beneath the receiver drums, and its head swathed by the band that holds them over the ears. In the corner the second signaller sat up and peered out of his blanket, and then lay down again. ZX? Is there an officer there? Hold on a minute, please. The officer's at the gun, sir. Will you speak to the corporal? Yes. I already had the receiver to my ear. Is that the trench-mortar corporal? Well, go and tell Mr. McFarlane, will you, to stop firing at once, and not to start again till he hears from Mr. Adams. Right, right. Thanks. This last to the signaller as I left the dugout. Thud! And another football blazed through the sky. Macfarlane was the officer in charge of the trench mortar guns of our sector. I knew him well. Davidson was in charge of the Stokes gun, which is a quick-firing trench mortar gun. Macfarlane's shells were known as footballs but as they had a handle attached they looked more like hammers as they slowly curved through the air. 
we had arranged to strafe a certain position in the german support line at five minutes after midnight but i wanted to stop it before retaliation started the doctor had gone up the front line and robertson would be brought down any minute outside i met brock he said little but it was good to have him there a long while it seemed waiting i started up seventy-sixth street no sooner had i started than i heard footsteps coming down and to make room i went back i was preparing to say some cheery word to robertson but when i saw him he was lying quite still and unconscious i stopped the little doctor is he bad doc well old man i can hardly say he's got a fighting chance and he went on slowly i heard the stretcher-bearer's footsteps growing fainter and fainter and there was silence thank god those footballs had stopped now did i guess that robertson too was mortally wounded i cannot say only my teeth were set and i felt very wide awake in a minute both davidson and macfarlane came up davidson down seventy-sixth street and macfarlane down rue albert i told macfarlane all about it and as i did so my blood was up i swore hard at the devils that had done this and we agreed on a strafe at quarter to one i stood alone at trafalgar square there was a great calm sky and the moon looked down at me then with a thud the first football went up then the stokes answered bang 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 up they sailed into the air altogether and exploded with a deafening din thud thud bang 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 then the bosch woke up two canisters rose streamed and fell dropping slightly to my right but still our trench mortars went on two more canisters tried for davidson's gun i was elated this for thompson and robertson i said as our footballs went on methodically then the whiz-bangs began on trafalgar square i went to the telephone artillery i said briefly retaliate c one sector and then our guns began scream 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 they went over swish swish answered the bosch whiz-bangs said sergeant tallis the bombing sergeant as he looked out of his dugout more retaliation i said to the signaller and stepped out again a grim exultation filled me we were getting our own back i did not care a straw for their canisters or whiz-bangs it pleased me to hear sergeant tallis say phew my blood was up and i did not feel like saying phew the officer wants to know if that is enough said the telephone orderly who had come out to find me no i answered i want more the bosch was sending heavies over on to maple redoubt i would go on until he stopped my will should be master again our shells screamed over there was no reply gradually quiet came back then i heard footsteps and there was davidson his face was glowing too how was that he asked how was that he had fired magnificently though the bosch had sent stuff all round him how was that magnificent we've shut them up i've got six shells left shall i blaze them off oh no said i i think we've avenged tommy his face hardened 
Good night, Bill. But I did not feel like sleep. I still stood at the corner, waiting for I knew not what. Bang, 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 went the Stokes gun. There was a pause, and bang, 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 came the sound of them bursting. There was a longer pause. Bang! I watched the spark floating through the sky. Bang! came the sound back from the German trench. I waited. There was no answer, and for the first time that night I fancied the moon smiled. End of chapter 10